Um, I don't get to go to other people's churches very often. You know, you might expect that. I'm here most Sundays. Every now and then I get to travel and I get to go to a different church. And one that I have really loved over the years is back in Cambridge. Um, It's a little church called Christ the King. It's a Presbyterian church. And oftentimes I'll go back to Cambridge for about two weeks to study at uh, Labrie Fellowship, as I've mentioned to you many times. But this is the church that I'll attend on the Sundays that I'm there. I find them to be really like-minded, and yet there are some differences there, too, that kind of catch me off guard at times. Some of them are fun. Some of them are weird. Uh, But it's a great little church. And uh, a few years back, I was there. It was actually the first time that I had gone. And there was a bit of the liturgy, a bit of the practice of the worship service that I found strange. I had never seen it before. Um, It was this thing called um, passing the peace some of you know what I'm talking about? Can I see some hands? Anybody pass the peace? All right. Some of you do. Um, I, I had never heard of this before when they, they had everybody stand up and, and kind of mill around in the, in the auditorium there to pass the peace. It just sounded weird. I thought, that's something you do at the dinner table. And then you follow it with the rolls and, you know, the main dish and the potatoes. You pass the peace, right? Uh, so anyways, I, I was thinking, this is so weird. I've been in church for like 40 years. I've never encountered this before. And uh, that was good for me as a pastor to encounter something new, to sort of be caught up in that and, and to see how sometimes um, that feels. But if you don't know what it is, so you, they, you, you basically, people will stand up, mill around, and they will say something like this. May the peace of Christ be with you. And the proper and expected response to that is, and also with you, Right? Um, a couple years ago, my wife was invited uh, with a friend of hers to uh, attend a church here in town, kind of a high church liturgy that practices this, and she hadn't run into it either. And so her friend, with solemn decorum, said, Amy, may the peace of Christ be with you. And Amy said in response, right back at you. <laughs> she didn't know the mantra there, so... So on one hand, I found this kind of strange and unusual and a little bit manufactured, but on the other hand, I found it interesting and kind of uh, provocative a little bit to see that the value of peace and unity was stitched right into the liturgy of a worship service, that a church would remind itself that they are united in Christ. Uh, In other words, it served as a reminder that though we are different people, We come from different backgrounds. We have different opinions on an array of matters. We are united in Jesus Christ and therefore much more unites us than divides the body of Christ. We live from remarkable common ground and it is good to affirm that from time to time. And so I think this is the understanding that the Apostle Paul is sort of pressing home to the uh, church in Philippi here uh, in chapter 4. So you know how the outline works in your bulletin. I try to give you the the sense of the message in one line, if I can, and that's this, those whose lives are centered upon Christ pursue peace. Those whose lives are centered upon Christ pursue peace. So chapter 4, starting at verse 1, we'll go to verse 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche 
to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. And so the first point I want to draw out of this passage is that a life centered upon Christ strives for peace with one another, particularly within the fellowship of God, the church. And I also wanted to start by saying, I really appreciate the honesty of Scripture. Not just that what it says is true, but that it's transparent about things. Uh, It doesn't always show the Christian community by way of putting its best foot forward. Sometimes it puts its ugly foot forward, right? And it just shows real people doing real things in the real world. And I kind of appreciate that. It shows the Christian community warts and all. And the first century church, uh, that community of believers, particularly here in Philippi, they faced attacks from outside. Persecution, false teachers, whatever. But they also faced attacks from inside. Uh, And one of those that I think gets fleshed out here is this interpersonal conflict. In other words, sometimes, even in the church of Philippi, whom Paul loved, sometimes they bickered. Imagine that. Bickering, even in a church. Even in a Baptist church. Even in a conservative Baptist church. Sometimes they bickered. And this kind of dispute didn't just find its way, you know, in the ordinary riffraff of of the body of Christ, but even among its top-tier leaders, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Barnabas in Acts 15. We're told that they had such a sharp disagreement over the trustworthiness of John Mark on a missions trip that they parted company. They went different ways. These two friends, these two brothers in Christ, partners in the gospel, parted company. So it may not be fun to encounter these kind of incidents in Scripture, but I I find it to be refreshingly honest, and I find that it also bolsters the legitimacy of Scripture that talks about even the ugly moments and the ugly things. So here in Philippians, the, the thing that we encounter is this conflict with two prominent women in the church, Iodia and Synthike. And these two have served, as we see, they've served alongside Paul diligently, contending for the gospel, In other words, these are not just two grouchy old biddies, right? This is not one mature woman and one relatively immature woman. These are two honorable workhorses for the church, respected women, respected leaders, and they're at odds with one another. And what's interesting is, we don't know why. (laughs) Don't you want to know why? I want to know why. I want to know what the issue is. I'm curious. Paul doesn't tell us why, but he urges the church to help them be of the same mind, to be of the same mind. 
Now, I think that's a loaded phrase. That's a phrase that's going to require some understanding if we're going to unpack this passage here. What does it mean to be like-minded? Does like-minded simply mean that we come to the same conclusion on a matter or that we have agreement on the issue? And I don't think that's the case. When we first run into this phrase, it's back in chapter 2, verse 2, verse 4, and kind of flowing out of there, the Greek word is phreneo, that's for the phrase there, of the same mind or like-minded. And the concept is less about a position of agreement, and it's more about a posture of concern for one another, a posture that is modeled for us in Christ. We went over this through chapter 2, right? It says in chapter 2, verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Conceit, Rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves, looking not to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Those words are all for neo. Mindset is a posture towards my brother or sister in Christ, not a position of agreement necessarily on the issue. And so we don't have to, just being a Christian doesn't mean we will agree on all things. But it does mean that there ought to be charity and generosity and humility that characterizes our interactions with one another. And again, this mindset gets fleshed out for us in the example of Christ. As he descends from heaven, takes on humanity, and goes, for the, goes to the cross. And that's what's fleshed out in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. That's mindset. Not position, but posture. Um, I think we're also reminded here how important um, resolving conflict is in the church, or rather how dangerous unresolved conflict is. Um, It's harmful to not only the community of the church, but also to its witness to outsiders. It can derail the mission of God that the church is to carry out. Uh, And so Paul's request to help these two women become like-minded or of a similar posture, gracious posture, uh, I think underscores a few things that we would do well to remember. The first is this, the dangers of unresolved conflict. The dangers of unresolved conflict. So critical is this issue, so important or so dangerous for the church, for its witness and its work, that Paul calls upon the church members to come and help these women, to help them find this posture together. And I think one of the things that we find here, the inherent dangers of unresolved conflict is it creates a lens through which we see others. And we constantly interpret their words and their actions and their mannerisms through a lens, a lens of distortion that we have created. So unresolved conflict tends to create further conflict. It becomes self-perpetuating. And I think that is why uh, it is, we are called upon to resolve it and to help one another resolve it. Uh, it's so important that I think the scriptures develop what I'll call the go-to principle. The go-to principle, um, which is this. If you are aware of interpersonal conflict, either that you have against somebody else or that they have against you, it's your responsibility to go to them. It's always your responsibility to go to them. In other words, you don't get to say, she knows where I live. He knows how to reach me. He knows how I feel about this. We don't get to sit back and say, not mine. If you're aware of interpersonal conflict that somebody has 
towards you or that you have towards them. It's your responsibility to go. It's always your responsibility to go. Uh, This is how I think we find this. Teachings of Jesus, uh, Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, the gift of peacemaking is your first offering. It's a more valuable offering than any denomination you have that you would set on the altar. Go and make peace with your brother and sister. Be reconciled to them first. And the second passage is similar, but from sort of the opposite side. This is Matthew 18. If your brother sin or sister sins, and in some translations sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And then it goes through a sequence of what to do next and next and next. But in other words, if we're aware that somebody has something against us, we go to them. If we know we have something against them, we're to go to them. The go-to principle. It's always your responsibility to go. That's how important it is to resolve conflict within the family of God. Um, I think it's also interesting here, too, that the Apostle Paul calls upon the church family to get in on this. You know, it's not, he doesn't say the elders, he doesn't say the pastors. Uh, And so I think from this, we kind of learn a very dignifying expectation that the Apostle Paul has of you guys. You're to help one another get along in the Lord. You are. It's not for the professionals. Peacemaking in the church is the work of the people also. Uh, And so I want to talk through just a few ways that um, we go about doing this. It's not always when we're aware of the conflict, but there's a lot of low-level things that we might, might do as well. And so here's just some everyday practical ways that we become peacemakers in our churches. Speaking well of one another. We might have some personality disagreements or something we don't necessarily care for in another person or have a disagreement with them, but there's something in them that we can affirm, something in them that we can respect, something in them we can speak well of. And I would remind you that they are a person that Christ loves and died for, and that ought to help your perspective. Not gossiping or slandering. Uh, Giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Oftentimes we can be quick to jump to a conclusion, usually because we're a little bit sore in an area. But if we give someone the benefit of the doubt, oftentimes we'll find that the first blush presentation is not as bad as we actually thought it was. Practicing mediation. Again, this is friends helping friends. Sometimes you may have a conflict and say, listen, I've got to go talk with this gal. I need to go talk with this fella. Would it be okay if we had somebody there with us to help us listen to one another? Sometimes we need someone to help us listen. Uh, overlooking a minor offense. It's not a big deal, Right? Uh, one of the things that somebody might tease me about, Eric, you're bald. Yeah, guess what? I'm bald. I've made my peace with it. I've saved a lot of money on shampoo and hair products over the year. I'm all right with it. You're going to tease me? Eh, it's no big deal. The last haircut I paid for was the week of my wedding, by the way. Do you know how much money that is if you add that up over the years? Confronting offenses when they're small. Clearing the air getting closure on something, keeping short accounts, urging others to pursue peace, being quick to offer our own repentance and admission of wrong when we're aware of it. 
and being generous to offer full and robust forgiveness to someone who asks for it from us. We have been forgiven much. In other words, it is the work of the people to protect and to promote unity within the body of Christ. Thirdly here, we learn that confrontations will not always produce agreement. No big surprise there, right? Just because we go to someone, just because we say our peace, just because we try to resolve the issue, just because we seek reconciliation, doesn't mean we find it. And because of this, one of my favorite passages on that subject in all of the scriptures is Romans 12.18. I say thank God for Romans 12.18. It says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. So on the one hand, it shows how important it is. It presses us towards this. Uh, But it also includes this double qualification, right? Twice, if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you. And one of the things that this kind of brings home to us is that a relationship has two sides to it. And we're only responsible for one, ours. We can act upon ourselves. We can seek the Lord out for what he would have us do. And sometimes we will do all of the things. We will do the go-to. We will do all of the peacemaking things. And there's still a rift. There's still unreconciliation. There's nothing more we can do. And sometimes we have to say, Lord, I've done what's possible. I've done what's up to me. Perhaps there is work that they need to do with you. I leave that in your hands. And I, I have had to do that myself uh, uh, on a couple of occasions. I, I want to introduce something else. I hope this will be helpful for you. I probably should have put it in your notes and didn't, so you might flip it over and use the back side, which is blank. Um, this is something that was developed by one of my favorite professors and friends at uh, Western Seminary, Gary Brashears. Um, and it's called Four Levels of Certainty. Four Levels of Certainty. In other words, not all of the issues or contentions that we might have with one another are at the same elevation. There's some diversity here. And so it goes something like this. There are, there are four, four levels. Uh, issues to decide for, issues to debate for, issues to divide for, and issues to die for. And this progression here. And so I'll give you, I know some of you are sitting there going like, yeah, well, which belongs in which category? Okay, well, I'll do my best to try to paint this a little bit. <clears throat> issues to decide for. These are relatively low-level issues. You might say, well, I prefer the ESV translation of the Bible, Eric, and you teach from the NIV, the 2011 version of the NIV. Even my wife and I don't agree on this. She prefers the ESV and needles me about it quite a lot. This is an issue to decide for. Hey, you prefer this, I prefer that. No big deal. Or it also could be personal liberties. Does someone drink alcohol or not? This is a decide for. It's low level. It tends to be more personal preference. Second level, debate for. Okay, now we're getting a little more meat on the bone here. This might be something like, what is your uh, preference when it comes to eschatology? Um, What framework do you support? Are you pre-trip, mid-trip, post-trip? Where are you on that? Uh, Or what worship style? What worship kind of music is your preference? Do you prefer hymns or do you prefer choruses? And we might have our preferences here. There's a little more substance to it. But in in the end, there's lots of room for liberty in where somebody might decide. We might debate over it, but it's an inside-the-family kind of debate. The third one, divide for. Divide for. 
These are going to be a little bigger issue, at least for a particular fellowship that you're in. And it might even just be kind of a practical thing that you run into a lot. For example, if you're one who believes in sign gifts that you would expect on a normative basis to see uh, healings and miracles and speaking in tongues and word of the Lord and these kinds of things, this probably isn't going to be the best fellowship for you because on an every weekly basis, you're not going to encounter that. And it might be one of those things that you go, I need to practice worship elsewhere. Or it could be, I'm not trying to send anybody out the door. I'm just trying to describe here. I hope you didn't hear that wrongly. Um, or it could be something like gender roles in the church. If you come to some different conclusions about that than your church fellowship, it could be a divide for thing because it's going to sting you on a regular basis. Does that make sense? So a divide for. And the last one here, this is probably a little more clear. These are close-handed issues that comes to the faith. These are things we die for. We go to the stake for this. This is the deity of Christ. The inspiration of Scripture, the bodily resurrection of our Lord. We die for these things. On the first level, decide for, we wouldn't even take a paper cut for them. On the die for, yeah, we would volunteer our life to defend them. And so I think uh, we need to ask ourselves when a potential conflict comes up, where does this fall sort of on the index of hierarchy here? What level of certainty do we have? It's just a helpful grid to pass this through. There's a great quote that's often attributed to St. Augustine. I haven't found it in his original sources, but I, the quote is valuable anyways. Uh, it says this, In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I think that's helpful. All right, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So our second point here is this, that a life centered upon Christ will pursue peace, or will display peace, rather, to outsiders. Those who know us, those who know us as Christians, those who observe uh, the, fa the family of God that we're a part of, will see a peacefulness in us. It should be evident to all. That is the overall snapshot of a Christian's demeanor in the world. Which means this, we shouldn't be known as worriers. We shouldn't be known as those who have a prevailing sense of anger or are quick to anger, hotheads. We shouldn't be those who are the anxious type, constantly dealing with anxiety, that should not be characterizing Christians. And I will tell you, that in the world generally right now, anxiety is on the rise. Now you talk to any counselor right now, and they are full of appointments with people over the issue of anxiety. And I know some of you are listening, and you're saying, Pastor Eric, I do feel anxious. And now you've just said, that the scripture says we shouldn't feel anxious. And now I feel anxious about feeling anxious. <laughs> so I'm not making fun of you, but I understand the cycle that that sets up. And be patient here. This passage does not mean that the Christian will never feel anxiety or will never feel anxious or upset or threatened or concerned. But it should be a passing emotion, one that emerges and is dealt with. It should, it should be dispensed in time with the resources that were given in Christ. And I want to remind you of some of those. But the Greek word here is actually in the present tense, which means an ongoing continual action. So don't be anxious indicates that readers must stop what they are continually doing. 
So it might sound like, stop wringing your hands. Stop grinding your teeth. Stop perseverating day in and day out over your worrying issues. That's kind of the point that Paul is getting across here. And this isn't just a quick and glib thing he says, like, hey, don't worry. You know, I know that's the quickest way to irritate my wife. She's upset about something. Quickest way to irritate her. Honey, you're overreacting. Right? <laughs> Fellas, that always works, doesn't it? If you want to have a fight, that's the way to start it. This isn't quick and glib. He anchors it in resources that are available to us so that Christians can respond to their anxious moments in a manner of peace. And the first is this. He reminds us God is near. God is near. There's more than one way to understand or interpret the nearness of the Lord here. Um, I'm going to tell you both of them. The first one is the most popular one, and I will tell you I actually don't agree with that one. Uh, I, I don't think it's as strong as the other one. I have a minority opinion here, but... I'm happy to share that with you. Uh, the first understanding of the Lord is near would, would, would be kind of what we would call temporally. In other words, it would focus on the return of the Lord. So the argument would sound something like this. Rejoice, be gentle with everyone. The Lord could come back at any time. And that would be the sense of it. And that's possible. It's a perfectly legitimate interpretation. Um, I think, however, it has some weaknesses. Uh, the biggest of which is that it's been 2,000 years since Paul said it. For the modern Christian looking at it, it's kind of like, really? The Lord is near. When you said that, it was 2,000 years ago. So it's open to that, that charge, okay? So that's maybe the weakness in it. Um, now, there would be a nuanced response to that, and I'll spare you that, the time on that one. But the second interpretation, this is the one that I support. I think it's stronger. Um, this is also held by D.A. Carson. He's an excellent scholar. If you know who he is, he holds this as well. This isn't a temporal understanding, but it's a spatial understanding. In other words, the Lord is close. He's not far off. He's not far removed. He's not unaware. He is in our midst. He is with and present with us. The Lord is near. So this interpretation would sound like this. Rejoice, be gentle with everyone. The Lord is right among you. He is close to you. And I think the spatial understanding of this would help us understand we have access to God. We have both accountability. He's here among us. And we also have access to him through prayer, which is exactly how the passage unfolds, right? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And so I think the nearness of God or his closeness should provide accountability for our actions, but also remind us that we have an avenue to deal with them. We take them to the Lord so that when anxiety comes, a perfectly legitimate emotion, prayer follows. And I think that's how Paul works that out here. Secondly, we're reminded that amazingly, 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 I hope you never get overly comfortable with this, God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. Um, I got an email this week <clears throat> uh, from a dear woman in our church, and she was. T I, it's amazing to me how often God will bring up an incident or something the week of, um, or that coincides with the same thing I'm preaching on that week, and that happened again this week. She sent me an email about, hey, I'm dealing with some anxiety. 
for some very understandable, um, serious situations in her life. And she asked me this question. Didn't Jesus feel anxious? Say, say on the night he was betrayed, arrested, right before the crucifixion. Didn't Jesus feel anxious? In the garden, didn't he sweat drops of blood? Wasn't he under such pressure that, in fact, he asked his friends to come and keep watch with him? Didn't Jesus feel anxious? And how, then, can Paul say, don't feel anxious? Aren't there occasions to feel anxious? And I would say, absolutely. I would say, I absolutely believe that Jesus felt it that night. But prevailing anxiety was not a characteristic of our Lord and Savior. A legitimate emotion in a moment. But interestingly, Jesus handled it in the same manner that Paul prescribed for us, which was what? He prayed. That night in the garden, with all of the anxiety, our Lord was filled with prayer. He took it to the Father. We often treat prayer as a last resort when it ought to be the first line of defense. And God means to do more than just fix our problems with prayer. He wants us to know his powerful presence. There is more than just a functional aspect to prayer. There is a relational aspect where we draw near to the Lord, where we know his closeness. And that, we are told, provides us a guarding peace. I will say, as the world moves more and more away from God and from his power and from his authority and from his presence, they will wallow increasingly in anxiety. But as Christians, we can be characterized by being at peace, not because we're without issue, but because we are with resource. We have a God who cares, who hears us, and who is very near to us, and we can take our issues to him. And he promises to give us a guarding peace, not just a sense that falls out of heaven, but an active force that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? Peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The final point is this. A life centered upon Christ enjoys peace within oneself. I told the first service that I wasn't sure about my grammar in this one at the end here, oneself, and a cheeky fella came up to me afterwards and said, you're right, it is wrong. It, it ought to be one's elf. And I was like, thanks for that. I think I'm more right than he is. One's elf. This peace that God promises to give us, it doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's not just a gift of heaven, but it's also something that we participate in. We can cultivate this. This is something we work on with God through a disciplined mind. Elsewhere, Paul tells us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Um, I mentioned earlier that this, um, our culture in this day and age is growing um, with anxiety, that is a prevailing issue right now. And I will tell you this, one of the primary things contributing to this, you know this, I'm just telling you what you know, you know this. One of the things that contributes to this in our day and age 
is that our souls are bombarded with more information than we were meant to handle. Um, let me just, I, I, to, to make this point, I pulled out my phone, I pulled out a social media app, and I just did about, you know, a 90-second session of swiping. This is what I encountered. You ready? Um, a tragic house fire, local political race outcomes, uh, a war in the, the war in the Ukraine, a shortage of teachers, sentencing of a criminal, the latest TikTok video, news of another Christian leader's failure, the release of another book I ought to read, declining oil development, the closing of schools, the location of the 40-mile caribou herd, which was two sections over from where I was hunting, the bird flu, the monkey pox, and a bacon shortage. And you're all worried about the last one most, I can tell. <laughs> you guys are going to be at Fred Meyer afterwards hoarding bacon. I'm on <laughs> one 90-second session. A few swipes, right? Just And you get all this. It is the equivalent of handing a 40-pound bag of dog food to a toddler. Here, right? They're not built to hold that. They're not built to handle that. It's going to knock them down. And in the same way, we are taking in more information about more things, about more regions, than we were possibly meant to handle. We're becoming anxious because of a glut of information. Let me put it to you another way. I'll personalize this. Just my phone. This is just my phone. Ready? I manage four email accounts, two social media, plat uh, social media app platforms, four news apps, six financial apps, two power school profiles, and two messaging apps. And I would consider myself a very calculated user and a late adopter. My kids would say amen to that. Okay. That's me. But that's what I'm managing digitally. And here's what I'm managing actually in my real world when it creates some anxiety for you through my own life. Okay, you ready? I am trying to manage our home and a rental cabin in Fairbanks, Alaska that's trying to destroy everything. I'm maintaining four vehicles, an ATV, a pop-up camper, and a utility trailer. Between my wife and I, we have two careers. We have three kids, one in college with heavy-duty uh, tuition and soon to be a second. I'm trying to finish a doctoral dissertation, and I head a church of five, 600 people with 10 staff and an elder board. My point is this. I don't need to know about the water issue in Flint, Michigan. I can't do anything about a drought in Texas. I really don't need to know who won the cheerleading championship in Kentucky. I, I need to be generally aware of world events, right? Generally. But I wasn't made to hold all of the world's gory details. And the news, the way it comes out today, is this. If it bleeds, it leads. And so all we get is the sensation and the truth rarely, if ever. And if we get it, it's late and past the point of usefulness. What I want to tell you this is, if you want to start curbing your anxiety, limit your intake of information that you can't do anything about. Okay, I'll start with that. But I would say more than that, the Apostle Paul says we can choose to set your mind on good things. We can choose to. We can take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, 
whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You put your mind on the things that will put your heart in the right place, and God will help you with that. We'll close with the words of Jesus, the last words. He says this, Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Sons of God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a people not lathered up and riled up, worried and wringing our hands, grinding our teeth, unsettled, uneasy. We know difficulties come. We will feel them. That's legitimate. But may we, in the example of our Lord, take our anxiety to prayer. May we follow the teaching and the practice of Paul, who writes this not from the mountaintop, but from a prison cell. He knew how to practice peace. May we take our thoughts captive. May we have a good disciplined mind and cultivate right things. And God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us with that. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.